Good evening. If you would, turn tonight to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful, Lord, for your goodness to us. I pray that you'd bless now this time in your word. I pray that you'd help me, Lord, to communicate what you've laid upon my heart. I pray that it would be a help and a challenge to each of us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to apply this where it would be necessary, where it would be appropriate. And I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, I know that most of you know that for the last several weeks, we have been in chapter 15, and we have watched as the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers there in Corinth, those in the church, and he is confronting them on this newfound position that some of them have taken in relation to the resurrection. We know that there are some, we don't know the exact number, but there were some who had come to this conclusion that the resurrection was no longer going to take place for the children of God, that whenever death came into the life of a person, that that brought about a finality to that person's existence and there was nothing more to be considered for them. And so again, Paul has challenged their logic. He has asked them how they have come to such a con uh, position or a conviction uh, in their personal lives in this particular area by way of their position. And then last week as he continued to point uh, the inconsistencies out in their uh, position and in their thought process. We made our way to verse number 33 where he said this, be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. And basically what that verse meant was this, is don't allow yourself to be led astray, don't allow yourself to be tricked, don't allow yourself to be fooled, that whenever you have bad associations, whenever you have bad or unhealthy relationships, here is what they will do. They will corrupt good manners or positive manners of life. What Paul said is this, is that the bad always influences the good in a negative way. The positive do not influence the bad in a positive way. If I said that correctly, uh, then, then nod at me, okay, so that I know that I did. But uh, the point was this, is we have got to be very careful who we allow to get close to us because if they are ungodly, if they don't have a heart for the Lord, if they don't have a heart for serving the Lord, then they will have a negative impact on us. And it's so easy for you and I to think that we're strong enough to resist that, that it's not going to happen to us. But friends, it has happened to people far stronger than us. It has happened to people who were in a much better position, at least they thought, in their spiritual lives than us. We must be careful who we allow to be close to us because it will have an influence and an impact on our lives. All right, so that's what we talked about last week. Tonight, obviously, we are moving on. As we do, I want us to think about something. I know that most of you are familiar with this. I know that it will not shock you or surprise you, but I grew up in a pretty sheltered environment, all right? I grew up in a pretty sheltered environment, so if we were going to go around and give testimonies about the, the, the lives that we had as children and teenagers and what we were exposed to and the things that we saw, mine would be pretty vanilla. Mine would lack that excitement or that pizzazz. I am thankful for it, but there is no denying that my growing up years were very sheltered. That being said, it does not mean that I was not exposed to some things that were not positive because of certain people in our family. And so tonight I'm just going to talk for a moment about one of those people in my life growing up that I had some exposure to, and it was not always in the most positive of light, and that would have been my uncle, who is the brother of my mother. 
My uncle became an alcoholic at some point in his life. I don't know what all the contributing factors were. I don't know what his excuses would have been. But my uncle became an alcoholic. Now, whenever my uncle would drink, whenever he would drink to the point of becoming intoxicated, here is what was obvious and here is what was evident every time he drank to that point, and that was this, is it changed his mental disposition. It was impossible for him to drink. It was impossible for him to consume to the point of becoming intoxicated without it changing his thought process, without it changing his mental disposition. And you know what was the giveaway every time? It's pretty simple, actually. It was his actions. Because he would act in such a way when he was drunk that he would not act when he was sober. So it was very easy to tell that Uncle, fill in the blank, was drunk, that he had been hitting the bottle or, or he had had a few. It was very obvious to tell that he had been drinking because his actions would change because it had totally changed his mental disposition and his thought process. The best thing for my uncle was to do, th or the best thing for my uncle to do was this. It was for him to sober up and to stay sober. Would you agree with that? I mean, you know, if, if a person's got alcohol problems, the, the best thing for them to do would be for them to sober up and to stay sober because the change in the mental disposition which results in changed actions, it's never a positive thing long term. All right? It's just never a positive thing long term. Now, you may say, okay, kind of an odd introduction to a sermon. I get it. But tonight I want us to look toward the middle of verse number 34. All right, the middle of verse number 34. And whenever we tie all this together, I think you'll understand why I said what I did about my uncle. But if you notice there in the middle of verse number 34, Paul said this to the believers there in Corinth, those in the church. He said, and sin not, and sin not. Now, I know that to an extent what I'm about to remind us of, it's going to be basic, it's going to be elementary, it's going to be things maybe that you are so familiar with that you'd say, I don't need this reminder. That's fine, you may not, but some of us will, all right? So Paul said, sin not. Sin not. Now, tonight if I were to ask you what sin is, I think we would get several different definitions but we would all kind of get back to the same general idea, the same general thought, and we would probably say something like this, that sin is when you and I violate God's law or when you and I are disobedient to the Word of God. And certainly that is a part of the definition of sin. We would agree with that, right? If God has declared this, if God has stated this, if God has commanded this, if this has been recorded in Scripture for our, for our help and for our, our growth and for our protection, and if we choose not to do it, then that would be sin. James said, if a man knows what is right and does it not, to him it is sin, okay? So sin is when we live in disobedience to God's declared word. Now, all that being said, I want us to think about it also in this light, because the word literally means this, to miss the mark. To miss the mark. So obviously, whenever you and I disobey God's word, we are missing the mark, 
But here is the idea, and here is the picture that's kind of painted with that definition of missing the mark. It's kind of like a target, and you know what targets are are designed to have in mind or, or what they have as a part of them. You have that bullseye area, right? That is the perfect shot. That is the perfect place where you want your your bullet or your arrow to go, correct? Anything away from that bullseye is missing the mark. You may be close, you may be closer than some, you may be a little bit further off than others, but if you're not dead center on that bullseye, what have you done? You have missed the mark. Now, whenever it comes to our spiritual lives, if you keep that picture in mind, the idea of a target with the bullseye, well, the target on the spiritual, or the bullseye on the spiritual target would be this, it would be perfection. And anything less than perfection is you and I missing the mark, which would then be you and I sinning. So in our spiritual lives, here's what we are reminded of, that perfection is the bullseye, and if we're not perfect, then guess what? We're missing the mark. So that would be some kind of a sin, whatever it may be. Now, this evening, I trust that I don't have to labor this a whole lot, but I am going to try to show us what I'm talking about. In the last 24 hours, you know what is true of every one of us tonight? At some point in the last 24 hours, you know what we've done at least once? We have missed the mark. We have. Brother Kyle, how could you possibly say that? You don't know what the last 24 hours have looked like for me. All right, I'm going to go ahead and just just assume that in the last 24 hours, someone in this room has said something that probably didn't need to be said at some point to someone else. I'm not saying you cussed somebody out. I'm not saying that you had a fit and and you just cussed a blue streak and you really made a fool of yourself. But what I would say is this, is maybe you said something rude or maybe you said something hateful or maybe you said something that was, you know, gossipy in nature and it just didn't need to be said. In the last 24 hours, we did not hold our tongue and speak only words of grace and words of truth and words of kindness and words of encouragement and words of uplifting. Would we admit to that? Okay, some of you won't, but you're just, it's okay. We'll we'll try to hit on something that you have been guilty of in the last 24 hours. In the last 24 hours, you've probably done something that, you know, wasn't a bullseye kind of an action. You could have done it better. You could have done it with more grace. You could have done it with more of a spirit of meekness, whatever it was. What about this? Maybe you didn't say anything. Maybe you didn't do anything. But in the last 24 hours, you had an attitude. I didn't say it, but I thought it. You've been there, right? I'm, I'm just saying, in the last 24 hours, the bullseye is perfection. And if we'd be honest, we'd say, man, my attitude hadn't exactly been perfect the last 24 hours. Maybe you lacked patience. No, 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 Brother Kyle. I've had perfect patience the last 24 hours. See, I'm going to suggest that some of you have lied then in the last 24 hours. You understand what perfection is? It's when we do every, listen now, it's when we do everything right every time. And friends, none of us have accomplished such. 
You and I have failed in the last 24 hours. If you won't admit to that, I know you have failed in the last 48 hours, in the last 72 hours. But I'd be willing to admit and admit that probably we don't even need many of us. We don't need to go back 24 hours to find at least one thing where we missed the mark. Okay. So here is Paul saying to believers, sin not. Well, Paul, what are you saying to them? Are you saying to them that they should be perfect? Well, I think the Apostle Paul would say this, that should be the goal of every believer. But the Apostle Paul understood that such a mark would never be achieved in their spiritual lives. It should be the goal. It should be what a believer strives for. It should be what a a believer is shooting for. But the Apostle Paul was pretty clear, and he was pretty transparent that even in his own life, perfection was nothing that he was threatening. He found he did the things that he shouldn't do. He found himself not doing the things that he knew he ought to do. So the Apostle Paul was not suggesting that they need to be perfect So then the question then would be this. What is it they were supposed to be striving for and what is it they were supposed to be working toward? Well, here is what I think makes more sense if we consider the Scripture as a whole and not just the idea of don't sin. I think that it would make sense to try to convey a thought, something of this nature, That what you do not want is for a sin to become a permanent or fixed and accepted part of your life. Think about this in the context in which this statement is being written. It's all about the resurrection, correct? Okay, the believers now in Corinth, they're not wrestling with this doctrine. They're not wrestling with this idea. They've not been introduced to this thought that there's going to be no resurrection after the death of a believer. They're not hearing that and then trying to come to some conclusion. No, they have already been introduced to this. They've already bought into it. And now they have adopted it. And it is a permanent, fixed part of their spiritual being. And friends, they could not have missed the mark more than they did when it came to their theology on the resurrection of the believers. You understand this, right? If this was the bullseye with right doctrine, with right right theology, then you know what? They completely missed the board. Their doctrine and their theology was nowhere to be found. So whenever Paul says, sin not... I think what could be better understood is this from, again, the words of the Apostle Paul and just general understanding of how weak our flesh is. What he is saying is, is you do not want this to become a fixed and permanent manner of life for yourself. Now, for them, it had relevance and application to their theology, their doctrine as it related to the resurrection. But let's think about this for just a moment as it could apply in other areas of life by way of principle. In the last 24 hours, you've probably said something that doesn't need to be said, right? Can we revisit that just real quick and be willing to nod tonight? In the last 24 hours, have you probably said something that didn't need to be said? Yeah, okay. 
that does not justify you and I saying something that didn't need to be said. But you know what we should never get comfortable with? A loose tongue being a permanent or fixed part of who we are as believers. If I say something that I should not have said, if I speak words that did not need to be spoken, what I need to do immediately is not make an excuse for those words. I need to admit that those words were not right, that those words were not appropriate, and I need to make it right before God because I don't want that to become who I am. So if I act in a way that is not right, if I act in a way that is not becoming as a Christian, it is not my privilege as a believer to say this, hey, listen, we all make mistakes, we all foul up, we all do things we shouldn't do, so just get over it and deal with it. What should my attitude and my spirit be? It should be this. I want to make things right, and I want to make them right, not only with God, but with the person that I've done the wrong with. That is what I want to do, because that is not what I want by way of my actions to become by way of permanency in my life. That's not what I want to be known for. So does this make sense? Whatever the sin may be, whatever the struggle may be, whatever the occasion may be, if it is wrong, we're not allowed to say, hey, listen, I'm a sinner. I'm never going to be perfect, so why don't you just deal with it? No, it is still up to you and I to make things right with God as it relates to our sin, but you and I can never get comfortable with whatever sin we may be engaging in. So he said, and sin not. Their theology, their doctrine, it was absolutely wrong. It was absolutely fouled up. It was completely messed up. He said, sin not. Now notice what he said next. For some have not the knowledge of God. For some have not the knowledge of God. What does it mean to have a knowledge of God? It means this, to have an understanding of who God is. Okay? To have an understanding of who God is, means to, that's what it means to have a knowledge of God. And so he said, some have not the knowledge of God. So if it means to have an understanding of who God is, but some have not this knowledge or this understanding of God, then here's what it means, is that there were some in their day and there were some in their culture who did not really know who God was in the way that they needed to know who God was. You following this? Sin not, because there are some who don't know God. Don't let sin become a permanent fixture of your life because here's the reality. There are some who do not have a knowledge of God. And so what he is suggesting and what seems to be implied in that statement then is this, is some people will determine what God must be based on what they see in you. So see, you've got this doctrine now, you've got this theology that there will be no resurrection, that you're just going to live and then you're going to die. Paul said if that's the case, I might as well eat and drink and not deal with all the sufferings and the trials that we're going through, right? 
Now think about how appealing the gospel would have sounded to people in their day coming from men and women now who no longer believe in a resurrection. Hey, listen, why don't you become a follower of Christ? Well, why would I do that? Well, we don't know. It's really not going to benefit you any. I mean, well, it'll get you persecuted and it might get you made fun of. It'll get you mocked and it'll get you made, you know, laughed at and things like that. But why don't you go ahead and, and, and come to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Do you see how that would totally misrepresent the picture of who God was to those who did not know God? Now think about this. Anytime we blow our testimony, we run the risk of blowing it in front of someone who does not know God. And we have just then given them a glimpse of what God must be like to them. Now, friends, that puts some serious weight on our manner of life, does it not? So let's just suppose for a moment you've had kind of a rough day. You know, things haven't really gone the way you wanted them to go. And you decide, you know, I'm just frustrated. I'm just angry. So here's what I'm going to do. Rather than, than, than go home and eat, I'm just going to take my wife out to eat. And you go out to a restaurant here in town, and the waiter or the waitress gives you less than admirable service. Not that that would happen, right, here in town. I'm just saying it's possible that it could happen. And let's just suppose for a moment that they caught you praying before your meal arrived. But you've had a bad day already. And now they're not giving you the service that you expected. And that's only making you more frustrated. Have you ever gotten frustrated at the service you've received? Okay, a couple of us have. And let's just say that in your frustration with everything that's gone on throughout the day, you kind of snap at the server and say something rude or hateful to them. You're the Christian, they're not. What kind of picture did we just give them of the God we claim to serve? We didn't give them a very good picture of our God, right? Now, I, I want us to understand this, okay? It doesn't matter if it's at a restaurant, if it's at a ball game. It doesn't matter if it's at a family function, at a work environment. It doesn't matter. The reality is this. Anytime we blow it in front of a non-believer, the one who doesn't know God, guess what? We have just given them a glimpse into who our God is And the glimpse that we have given them is a completely wrong picture that they need to see of our God. Now, friends, that's if we blow it just once. Think about it, please, if this is a permanent, fixed manner of life. Are we listening? A fixed, permanent manner of life for us. What if we're just rude all the time? Because there are people who are rude all the time. They don't think about what they're saying. They don't think about what they're speaking. They don't think about how their words are coming across. So what if we're just rude all the time? Can you imagine how that must impact the lost, those who don't know God? Can you imagine if you're loose with your language and the profanity comes and it comes on a regular basis and, and you know, you say the same words that they say and you, you get mad and you express yourself the same way that they express themselves and then you want to tell them about God? Can you imagine for just a moment how that might be a bit confusing to the one who does not have an understanding and a knowledge of God? 
Let's, let's just suppose for a moment that, that it's not our tongues that get us in trouble, but we're just perpetually mean. Perpetually, consistently, regularly, frequently, often mean to people. So well, that would never happen. Seriously? It's possible that some who call themselves Christians just aren't very nice people. Can you imagine what that does to their testimony in the eyes of those who don't know God? What about the person who's constantly got an attitude? They've always got an attitude toward authority, toward this person, toward this person, toward this situation. Everything's always wrong. Nothing's ever right. Nobody ever does it good enough. But bless God, I go to church and i got to hurry and get off work so that I can get to the house of God. Can you imagine how impressed they must be with that? Paul said, sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. Friends, you and I cannot accommodate sin in our lives, make excuses and make allowance for it, because there are lost people out there who are watching us, and we are the ones conveying to them what our God is, what he's about, and his nature. It's not an accident that so many people are not overly impressed with modern-day Christianity. Because I think many times we lose sight of the fact that we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So notice what he said next. He said, I speak this to your shame. I speak this to your shame. What does it mean to speak something to your shame? He is saying this, guys, you ought to be embarrassed. Truly, th th this ought to embarrass you. You ought to be humiliated that this would be true of you, that we even have to discuss this, that we even have to go through this. Can you imagine if the Apostle Paul tried preaching in the year 2017? He probably would not be highly received in most churches today. You know why? Because he was not worried about their feelings. He was not worried about making them feeling cuddly and warm whenever they, they left a service or when they got done reading his letter. No, he is saying this. You know what? You need to get rid of this sin in your life. This which you have adopted and this which you have made a permanent part of your spiritual life, you need to get rid of that. You need to deal with that because there are people who don't know God. And in light of all this, you should be embarrassed by your behavior. So let's consider this. I wonder how many times we ought to be embarrassed by our behavior. I mean, have we thought about that lately? You know, the way we just showed out at the restaurant? The way we just told that person off at work? The way we got in their business? The way that we expressed ourselves? The, the attitude that we've had at work? The way that we've gossiped with family about so many different things that have been taking place? And, and you know, run this person down and run this family down and run this down and run this down. Isn't it amazing how many times we can live in sin and we're not even embarrassed? 
by the sin we're living in? Listen, I'm not trying to humiliate any of us. I'm just saying what the Apostle Paul said, that he was speaking this to their shame. He's saying you ought to be embarrassed. I'm just throwing this out here as a possibility. Sometimes we ought to look at our behavior. Sometimes we ought to look at the, the things that we say and the attitudes that we, we harbor and, 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 and what we struggle with. And sometimes we ought to be embarrassed by it. To say That's pathetic. I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ and this is the way I've been acting. I am a spokesman for my Savior. I am the only picture of God that some will ever get to see. And this is the way that I've been living. That's humiliating. So in light of all this, before he says, Sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. Notice what he said first in verse number 34. He said, Awake to righteousness. Awake to righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, it would be that which is right, correct? Okay, so righteousness, that which is right, again, in the context of chapter 15, theology in relation to the resurrection, doctrine in relation to what will happen to the saints, after their death and the return of Christ. But he said, here's what you need to do. You need to awake to righteousness. What does it mean to awake? Well, you and I might think to come out from a sleep or something of that nature. But I find it interesting. I found it interesting that the word truly, literally means this. To return to sobriety from drunkenness to return to sobriety from drunkenness now I don't understand maybe everything that the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate I don't understand maybe everything that he was trying to convey to them but do you understand the picture here their mental disposition and their thought process had become extremely, extremely fouled up. And how could you tell? By their manner of life, their doctrine, their theology, what they were holding to, what they were practicing, what they were engaging in, not just in chapter 15, but so much of what is written and recorded throughout this letter. And so what is Paul saying to them? He is saying this, You need to sober up. You need to get your head screwed back on straight and and right. And, And you need to get out of this inebriated spiritual condition you are in. And you need to get your thought process back to where it needs to be. You know what Paul is saying, for lack of better words? He was saying this. You need to get spiritually sober so that you go through life with a clear mind, a clear thought process, with a clear understanding of what it is you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be living. I know this may seem weird. I know this may seem like a little bit odd or out of place, but 
But for lack of better words and just trying to stick with the idea of what's communicated in verse number 34, here's what I wonder. I wonder how many times we have lost our sobriety, spiritually speaking. It's kind of a gradual process, is it not? It's not just a little sip here and then all of a sudden there's a drunkenness and a spiritual state. It's a gradual process, right? It takes a little bit of time. I've never been drunk, but I've heard the stories, okay? It it, it takes a little bit of time, right? So I, I wonder how many times we have become spiritually drunk, inebriated, intoxicated, and as a result, with our lack of discernment, our mental disposition begins to change, and we begin to act in ways that we would never have acted if we were thinking right and thinking clearly with a sober, sound mind. And that's why we say things that we shouldn't say and we completely justify it. That's why we do things we know we ought not be doing and we completely justify it. It's why we have the attitudes we have and, and, and we completely justify it. You know why it's happened? Because slowly and gradually, here's what we've done. We've allowed our mental disposition to change and the clear thinking and the rational thought process we would have otherwise had. It's now been confused and convoluted with this mess of sin in our lives and what we used to would have dealt with, we've now fully accepted. And you know what we need to do? We need to sober up. We need to sober up. We need to get our heads screwed on straight again and realize this is not acceptable. Not now, not ever. It doesn't matter what the contributing factors may be that led me to this position. It's not right. We understand this? It doesn't matter what the excuses are. It doesn't matter how I can justify it. I need to sober up and get my head put on straight again. I need to get my thinking right again. And I need to just do what is right and not live in this state of sin that I've been living in and justifying it for however long. I need to get my my thoughts right and my attitude right and get back to where I'm supposed to be. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but I suspect most of us know what it's like. You've lost the clear, sound reasoning and the logic that you once had, and you needed to be awakened and sobered up and brought back to reality. And so tonight, I don't want to deal with the past and I don't want to speculate on the future, but what I'd like to do is is I'd like us to consider for just a moment where we're at right now. Is there some sin in your life right now that you've gotten a little comfortable with? You've made some allowances for it. You've gotten comfortable with it. And it's not bothering you like it once did. And it's not upsetting you as it once did. And it's, it's not causing you to run to God in, in repentance as it once did. Is there anything in, in your life right now that you'd have to call sin because you're missing that mark of perfection? But rather than it 
causing you to get it right like you used to. You've just gotten a little bit more used to it, and you've got a little bit more comfortable with it, and, and now all of a sudden it's just a part of you, though you didn't expect it to be. Can I remind you that there are lost people who are watching? And we're the only picture of God they may see. And if that's the picture we're giving, we really should be ashamed of ourselves. And you know what we need to do? Spiritually speaking, we need to sober up. We need to sober up right now because spiritual sobriety is the only way to go through life. Amen. We do ourselves no good and we help ourselves to no extent to be used to our sin, to be comfortable with our sin, and to tell ourselves that it's not affecting anyone else. Friends, it's affecting more people than we care to admit. I'm just asking, is there anything in your life that if you'd be honest tonight, you'd have to say, I just need to sober up and get my thinking right on this, and I need to get back to where I know I should have been a long time ago. I don't want to keep going through life with that attitude and that spirit. If you need to awaken tonight, if you need to sober up, I ask you, I plead with you, I encourage you to do so. Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to take serious these words that Paul wrote to the believers there in Corinth. I find it amazing how full and how powerful a verse can be sometimes when we stop and consider it. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us tonight to look at our own lives and see where we may be missing the mark. It's not a matter of if we are, it's a matter of where we are. And then it's a matter of what our attitude is like toward that sin. And, Lord, if we've had some sin in our lives that we've been comfortable with, that we've made excuses for, I pray that tonight you'd help us to be ashamed because it's okay to be ashamed of our sin. And, Lord, I pray that tonight you'd help us to sober up and do right get our thinking made straight, get our thinking made clear once more so that we can be the testimony for you that we need to be. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.